This is a People First Radio podcast. Opening a recent article, Kevin Patterson evoked the Nanaimo of a few decades ago. What he described sounds in many ways rougher than what you might picture thinking of the community today. A resource economy in decline, unemployment passing 12%, and jokes about Hell's Angels and Nanaimo bars seeming not too far from reality. But the Vancouver Island ICU doctor writes that even as unemployment has fallen and mean income risen, in the center of the city, there is a more visible and abject agony than was seen when unemployment was four times as high. In that article, published in The Walrus, Patterson explored the intersections between the opioid crisis and the housing crisis. He joined me to share more. Hi, I'm Kevin Patterson. I'm a writer, a novelist, and um, and a doctor. And you've written about what you call the defining moral failure of our era. Can you tell me what that is? Uh, I think it's the marginalization of of the poor, especially as that's expressed in the housing crisis. This phenomenon that's made everybody in North America who owns a house rich in the last ten years has made it impossible for very poor people to be housed. And that's just ignored. And I think that's a catastrophe. And you've opened your article on this by writing about Nanaimo's past. And you noted that 30 years ago, as many as 40% of people living here were living below the poverty line. And you also mentioned that unemployment peaked in 2001. What do you think those points illustrate? Well, the point is, is that it, that was a much more economically fraught time. The unemployment rate was 12% or more in the 90s uh, in the course of the collapse of the resource extraction economy. And yet the number of homeless people was much smaller. And this is because rent in constant dollars and, and house prices in constant dollars was, was much, much smaller. And um, it just illustrates how distorted things have gotten such that in a much more affluent time now, we have many more people who are unhoused. You've also written that tents catch the eye, but what the public mostly doesn't see is what emergency medical technicians do every day. Can you tell me about that? Well, my piece is an attempt to to explore the relationship between the housing crisis and the overdose crisis. As a physician, I deal with the overdose crisis every day. And my contention is that when a whole body of people are cast out onto the streets through economic privation, then it um, isn't surprising that in the context of dispossession and hopelessness that can attend that kind of existence, uh, that that people start to use uh, more drugs. This is not the only thing that drives the overdose um, crisis, for sure. The majority of people who overdose are housed, but it is a part of it. They're entwined, these two phenomena. Yeah, that was a major theme of your article, was that these issues of homelessness, housing, substance use, addiction, recovery from addiction mental health, mental illness, they're distinct categories. Someone affected by one won't necessarily be affected by the other. But the the big thesis you advance seems to be that 
if you lose your housing, almost no matter who you are, you're much more vulnerable to be impacted by things like addiction. Is that fair to say? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think the act of eviction is a catastrophe for people uh, in a way that many people don't ever recover from. You know, once you're out on the street, if you've been employed, you lose your job pretty quickly because, you know, um, can't maintain the things that are necessary to keep a job up. And, you know, your things get stolen pretty quickly. Regular assaults are a feature of living on the street. It just, things just get worse and worse and worse. And many people never ex escape that spiral. And you've talked about how as a medical practitioner, as a physician, you see the impacts of the overdose crisis, the toxic drug crisis every day. What about that experience? Do you think it's most important that people who don't aren't on the front lines of it? What, what do you think they need to know about it? Well, you know, the, the response of so much of society to the toxic drug crisis is, is just one of othering. You know, it, there's an attempt to, to dehumanize um, the addicted people and, and the people that are subject to the toxic drug crisis. And that is uh, indefensible ethically. Um, toxic drug overdose has become the number one cause of death for adults under the age of 50 number one cause of death of teenagers. And um, we just have to embrace this problem and figure out how to solve it. Uh, obvious solutions don't present themselves. People are trying all over the continent. But um, if we're going to have wars on cancer and, and wars on tobacco, it's time for us to, to take the same sort of committed society-wide approach to the toxic drug problem. And on that front, you've said that there's a, a prevalent narrative that attributes visible poverty to untreated mental illness, wound around its cause and consequence, addiction. But you've also said that this narrative crumbles after the first few questions. Uh, can you tell me why? Well, that narrative is, is uh, it's handy for uh, comparatively wealthy and unaffected people to to hold on to because it it lets us, the rest of us all off the hook you know it's not our fault people are in the street failing it's uh it's because of their mental illness and their own decision to use drugs and and that's extremely handy and and what i'm trying to do is blow that up because i don't think mental illness is more common now than it was in the 90s i think what has changed is uh, maldistribution of wealth and power and uh, the poor are more marginalized now than they've been in 120 years. And that is a consequence of economic and political decisions that empowered people have made. And one thing that often comes up on discussions of this subject, people bring up this idea of deinstitutionalization. What are your feelings on, on the impact of that? Yeah, I mean, that's a controversial subject and it's, it's complicated. I'm not a psychiatrist. I work in an intensive care unit. And what I am certain of is that given the prevalence of serious mental illness, given the impacts it has on society, it's clear to me that mental illness, mental health resources are uh, drastically underfunded and under-resourced. The number of psychiatrists available outside of all but the major cities is 
a tiny fraction of what is necessary. Even in the big cities, it's it's there um, there are not enough, but there are many fewer per capita everywhere else. And partly this is because of the ongoing stigmatization of of mental illness. Uh, the mentally ill just do not attract support and uh, telethon funding the way you know children with congenital heart disease do and breast cancer does and that's because it's because of stigma i think also on that front you've talked about the indifference and even hostility of government well i shouldn't say also on that front but also on the idea of stigma you talk about the indifference and even hostility of governments markets and voters to the unhoused can you tell me about how that plays out well, I think the principal manifestation of that is the unavailability of social housing. Um, as a country, we used to build a lot of social housing up until the mid-90s when uh, uh, Jean Chrétien was doing everything he could to rein in the deficit. And uh, so the federal government got out of the business of building social housing and transferred that responsibility along with an, an inadequate amount of money to the provinces to take over. And so social housing stopped being built uh, about then, and presently we're um, the country's ha- short uh, half a million homes, and the deficit just about exactly works out to the number of homes we would have built if we had maintained our social housing building policies that prevailed up until about ninety six. So um, we just stopped doing this thing that was necessary and has grown more necessary, and we haven't taken on uh, this as a priority, even as the number of unhoused people in all the major cities has blossomed dramatically over the last eight or nine years. You're listening to People First Radio. I'm speaking with Kevin Patterson, a Vancouver Island ICU doctor and writer. He's recently penned a column published in The Walrus, focusing on the intersections between the opioid crisis and the housing crisis. And you've also talked about the idea of diseases of despair and mentioned that that's not necessarily something the medical system traditionally takes into account. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, this was an idea that was first recognized and explored by some public health physicians um, in, in America in a paper in the proceeding of the Nas- Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, I think in 2016. And uh, what it recognized is um, a uh, after decades and decades of improving life expectancy, the um, uh, life expectancy in America started to plateau and fall. And this was the fall was especially marked among um, middle-aged non-college educated uh, white men and um, what these authors did is they related it to uh, the dispossession that this demographic experienced with the collapse of the manufacturing industry especially beginning in the 90s and continuing on subsequently and uh, what uh, you know the drivers of this decline in uh, life expectancy were suicide alcoholism and uh, toxic drug use And so on that front, you've written that the least distressed of Vancouver Islanders who are insulated from all of this 
are, are inevitably the richest and they live in Victoria, the provincial capital where decisions about the allocation of health resources, including mental health resources, are made. What are the, the consequences of that that you've been able to see? Well, you know, the maldistribution of, of wealth and power has a rural-urban gradient as well. And uh, people who live in cities are healthier than people who live outside of them. And the further up island you go from, from Victoria, the quicker the life expectancy drops. That's been well established for years. And yet uh, the, there's a significant maldistribution of resources favoring Victoria. And this has been in place for a long time. And so what can someone do with this knowledge, both what you were just mentioning there and broadly what we've been talking about today? Well, I think that we have to assign to the housing crisis and the toxic drug crisis the same sort of urgent priority that we ascribe to climate change. It's, it's, a, it's an existential problem. It's, um, it's a moral crisis. It's the number one cause of death among young adults, it simply has to be dealt with and recognized, even though, you know, the, it, it acts, these processes act out on, on people that might frighten us or, uh, or alarm us, you know, when they're in the streets and asking for money and whatnot, uh, we, um, we have to take this on. And uh, the first thing we have to take on, I think is, is the housing crisis. And we just have to build more social housing and that has to start now. And we have to do something to get their rents down. I make the point that there's all kinds of subsidies in place for homeowners, including the capital gains exemption tax for uh, principal residences, which amounts to billions and billions of dollars of subsidy a year that goes straight into the hands of, of the wealthiest, you know, the people who own homes. And that is uh, wildly wrong. You know, that some some portion, maybe all of that money should go to uh, should go to uh, the unhoused. I also wanted to ask, you say that this year in particular, there's been a surge in drug deaths in Nanaimo and that people coming to the hospital are acting differently than people with pure narcotic overdoses usually do. Can you tell me a bit more about that? Well, first of all, the the uh, number of drug deaths over the last 10 years has been increasing inexorably, and every year seems to be a spike upon a spike. Um, there's now been a, since 2012, there's been a 1,000% increase or a tenfold increase in uh, the number of toxic drug deaths in BC per year. So that's awful. And for the last several years, adulterants of the opiates, especially fentanyl, have um, been a feature of of the, what people are experiencing. Other drugs are mixed in with fentanyl that uh, sometimes are neurostimulants uh, and sometimes have uh, dramatic effects on people's bone marrow and uh, they can compound the toxicity. And this has been, you mentioned that it's been kind of continually getting worse but we've seen something new, uh, like a new level of it this year? Yeah, the death toll for 2023 will significantly exceed that from 2022. That's for sure. And uh, there's been aspects of these uh, toxidromes, of the way people have behaved when, they've, when they have overdosed, that suggests that there are 
adulterants in the system. One of them might be a drug called xylosine, uh, but there may be others as well. And I guess a big takeaway is that today we've really been talking about two distinct but overlapping crises. You mentioned early on in our conversation that most of the people dying from toxic drugs have housing, but you know we've we've talked about how you become so much more vulnerable uh, if you do not have housing to the effects of this. I don't know what for people who aren't involved in this world who are totally insulated. What is the the biggest thing you think it's important to know about maybe the overlap but not complete intersection of these two crises? Well, they have to be approached in a in a parallel way and and they both require a lot more resources than than they've received. I think the housing crisis is probably easier to address um because it's 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 mostly about the fact that we stopped building social housing 20 years ago. And the definitive fix for that to a considerable extent is just to resume doing that and to make up the shortfall quickly. The the toxic drug crisis is is more difficult. You know, experiments with the war on drugs and prohibition uh, have not worked um, well in the past here or or anywhere really in the world. And so dialing that back is going to require a combination of of innovation and research that is largely yet to be done. Some of the things that are necessary is more street medicine, more street nursing. Uh, we need more health engagement of the dispossessed than there's ever been before. And we just need to take this on as the with the urgency that the number of deaths generated by it every year uh, demand. Is there anything else you'd like people to know from your work as a physician in and around Vancouver Island? Oh, I, you know, I, what I just would urge everyone, as as everybody else who works in this field, and indeed as the BC coroner, Lisa LaPointe, um, asks us all to do all the time, is is to remember that these are human beings, and they're they're beautiful human beings who who suffer and need help. And it's at our own peril that we don't help them. The moral injury of ignoring their despair is, is, is great. Dr. Kevin Patterson, thank you very much for your time and, and thank you for your work. Thank you. Kevin Patterson is a doctor and a writer. His article, Why the Opioid Crisis is Rooted in the Housing Crisis, is available online in The Walrus. People First Radio, People First Media, and People First Stories are community media projects of Vancouver Island Mental Health Society and are produced in Nanaimo, British Columbia. The opinions expressed do not necessarily represent the views of Vancouver Island Mental Health Society or its broadcast, podcast, and social media partners.